You're listening to For the Fighter in You. Hey everybody, Jordan J. Adams, United Fight Alliance. Derek Meyer Galanis is a lifelong martial artist and black belt in the art of Subak Du Mu Du Quan, placing in numerous tournaments. Derek won the Nationals in 1996, a two-time Coastal League wrestling champion in 1989 and 1990. Derek also had a career in kickboxing, twice contesting titles in the cruiserweight division, the IKBA United States title in 1999, and the IKF California state title in 2009. He's fought under USA Boxing sanctioned rules, has earned a blue belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and trained in both kendo and lido. His dream is to have a combat sports nonprofit where children can learn about the positive benefits of martial arts like he has. And what an awesome goal to have in your life, Derek Galanis, to give back to the kids. Thank you so much for being on the show today. No, thank you for having me. And, you know, that is my dream. I mean, the martial arts saved my life. Um, and if I can give that gift to other youngsters, that's that's all I could ask for. Yeah, you grew up in the hard streets and you have a real hard scrabble story that we'll touch upon later. Uh, but right now we want to give props to your book and I'm going to try to hold it up and not have the background mess it up. There it is right there. Warrior of the light. And it is, it reads like a who's who it it's the history of not just martial arts, but mixed martial arts and all of the big names that kind of ushered it in, in the modern era. And, uh, I think, is it, is it safe to say you're, you're like a martial arts historian? Well, yeah, I mean, it is safe to say that. Um, it's funny you bring that up. Back when, uh, there were, before the UFC, there were no boxing gyms anywhere. You know, UFC has floated all ships. Um, and so I became kind of a boxing historian in the day where there were no boxing gyms around. And now, God bless, because of the success of the UFC, we've got boxing gyms on every corner. No child will be denied the ability to compete and to fight. And, and that is just a great thing. I'm so happy for it. It's such a great book. You take our readers through the highs and lows of MMA and you were in the mix in the early days. And that's why the book is so fascinating and fun to read before we get into some of the highlights. Cause what I want to do is read quotes from all the different chapters and have you expound upon that. Cause some of the quotes were so inspiring and so informative, but before we get in that, I just want to kind of talk hard martial arts themselves and just sort of get a feel for, you know, the sport of martial arts and MMA and just sort of go through questions and listen to an expert kind of expound upon that before we take the quotes out of the book. You cool with that? Oh, of course. That sounds great. All right. Perfect. Let's just start kind of in a random place uh, early in the book. Uh, and you started kind of like talking about what makes a great trainer. What in your mind makes a great trainer? Yeah, well, you know, here's the thing. It, it, unfortunately, today, uh, we have a lot more bad trainers than we have great trainers. Um, and, and this is due to the interaction of people. And, and if I can give you an example that that kind of is telling, it might be a, a little bit long winded, but I think it's worth it. Teddy Atlas is accepted today as one of the greatest boxing trainers of all time. Now, he may do great things in the gym. I'm not there with him. But I see Atlas in the corner at, at, at fights, and I see what he says to his charges. And generally what he, what he goes into is histrionics with useless anecdotes in the middle of battle. Um, when I'm in the corner, I want to hear a couple of things. I want to hear what I'm doing right. I want to hear what I'm doing wrong. And I might want to hear what my opponent's doing. And by the way, while this is going on, 
I need to control my breathing to lower my heart rate to be ready for battle again inside of one minute. Uh, a guy screaming at me or encouraging me is completely useless to me. But but let's look at where Atlas gained this. So everybody probably knows, or some people might not, Atlas was originally Mike Tyson's trainer. Um, and a little bit of a falling out happened. Um, Atlas wasn't happy of the special treatment Customato was giving Tyson in the house. And it eventually culminated where Mike got fresh with, I believe it was Atlas's niece. And Atlas pulled a gun on Tyson. Uh, Customato loathed to give up his future world champion, fired Atlas and hired Kevin Rooney. Um, Atlas then went on for about 10, 15 years telling people why Mike Tyson was beatable and how they could beat him. By the way, Atlas was dead on in everything he said. He said Mike Tyson was a promotional creation given weak fighters to scare people. Um, and he makes agreements, tacit agreements with fighters. He comes out really strong. And if he doesn't knock you out, as long as you start holding and carry the fight the distance, he'll let you survive. And by the way, that happened with Mitch Green. It happened with James Bonecrusher Smith. It happened with Tony Tucker, any number of fighters that happened with Tyson. Uh, and by the way, I, I'm not trying to take away from Tyson. I'm talking about fighting as a whole and trainers as a whole. Now, what more, what Atlas probably realized throughout this time is not only did nobody listen to him, even when he was proven right, nobody gave him any credit for it. Um, today, people talk about Tyson being one of the best of all times, and they're so caught up in that promotional machine, they can't look beyond the reality. Now, let's take a look at Atlas, because this is interesting. You remember Atlas started training Michael Moore. Uh, for whatever reason, Moore left Kronk, because he was with Emmanuel Stewart through his light heavyweight championship years. Um, I think he was even with him when he knocked out Burke Cooper for the WBO title. By the way, they knocked each other down two times. Great fight. Um, in the corner of Moore's fight with Holyfield, Atlas gives him a speech about the 10th round. He says, look, Michael, guys got to decide whether they're going to do something with their lives or they're just going to get by. And now is the time for you to decide that. Now, interestingly, Michael Moore didn't change anything. He kept on boxing the way he was boxing. Atlas was so disgusted, he turned his back on Moore before they read the scores because he thought his charge had lost and ignored his advice. Then Moore won the title. Now, how did the crowd react? The crowd reacted by saying Teddy Atlas won the world title for Michael Moore as if Atlas had fought more himself. And it was from that point on that Atlas's histrionics in the corner became more and more bizarre. The last time I saw him, he was screaming to Tim Bradley about how they're firefighters and they run into the fire. The kind of stuff that just doesn't make any sense at all. But guess who it shows well for? It shows well for the crowd, the fans, they say, God, look at how that guy's touching somebody else. Truth of the matter is, he's not helping his fighters all. He's helping Teddy Atlas to get the next high name fighter who's going to pay him a few hundred grand to corner him for one fight, and he's going to go on. By the way, I'll, I'll say something else. When Atlas gives uh, commentary and predictions now, 
He's usually dead wrong, but he never goes against the grain. I guess he learned a lesson from going against the grain with Mike Tyson because uh, he changed it up and now Atlas is the authority. But I would give Atlas as an example of a trainer who does not do his fighter justice. And unfortunately, there's a lot more Teddy Atlases in this world than there are fighter uh, trainers that help their fighters. So no Tony Robbins quotes in between rounds. They're not very helpful. <laughs> Look, you've been fighting your whole life, right? If you're a professional fighter in there, you, you know what's going on. And by the way, you're in the middle of war. In the middle of war, are there Tony Robbins quotes? No, you want the intelligence. Who wins? The, the people who win wars have the best intelligence. Explains how, why the Israelis are, are such a force. Um, you know, and if I, I'm in the middle of the fight, I can't see what's happening. I need eyes behind me to tell me what's going on. Hey, Derek, you're walking into his check hook. Hey, Derek, move your foot left. Try the right to the body. That's the kind of advice I want. I, I don't want histrionics. If you are a cheerleader trainer, you have zero use for me. And by the way, those guys are usually very egotistical. And by the way, I just bring this up because we've already covered the Atlas story. And I think it's important. I was in Oklahoma City, the transfer center, and they ruined me with a Bonanno family associate. Now, why do they do that? Because I'm listed as a Gambino associate. And so they think that putting us together will you know, keep the prison calmer We're with people with like minds. Now, forget about the fact that I don't have anything culturally in common with them. That's how it's listed and that's how it is. And uh, the Bonanno guy, apparently, his name was Fierro, I believe. He was a kickboxer and boxer in Florida. Supposedly had a gym, had some pictures with Mike Tyson and whatnot. And uh, he didn't know about my background because those guys never shut up long enough to hear about anything but themselves. Um, but he told me Teddy Atlas was a Bonanno associate. And by the way, Teddy Atlas acts in the corner. It doesn't surprise me. Yeah, you had uh, <laughs> made a real good point about the, you know, the Tyson uh pathos and the you know the promotional machine when you compared you know tyson to evander holyfield you know where holyfield never had that buzz i mean everyone knew who he was but he never had that terror people were never terrified of him but when you look at who he beat uh and then you look at who tyson beat the case is is made that evander holyfield's a, just a much better fighter not only did holyfield beat people who beat tyson but he beat Tyson straight twice, head twice. on, head to head. Twice. <laughs> you know what I mean? So why doesn't he have that terror pathos that Tyson still has? You see those, every time Tyson makes a quote, he gets 3 million, 3 million people engaging in his social media. And again, I'm the same as you. I'm not taking anything away from him. You know, he was amazing to watch and did amazing things for the sport. But if you're just talking hard statistics, this, this shows that he was promoted way better than Evander ever was promoted. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that for one quick second. So Tyson admittedly in one of his books talked about how the first 20 or so fighters were all basically setups in New York. Now, one fight back then, which you would never have heard of, was against a man, guy by the name of James Quick Tillis. Now, Quick Tillis was a veteran heavyweight at that point. And let me tell you what happened in the fight. All of Tyson's early fights were in New York. So it was in New York State. Tyson came out. He knocked Tillis down three times in the first round. Tillis got back up. He dusted himself off. And he outboxed Tyson over the final nine rounds. Um, and let me say this. 
at that time in New York, they've since rectified this. It was round scoring. So that means Tyson got no benefit for his three knockdowns. It should have been round by round. Tillis should have won that fight. And Mike Tyson won it by split decision, by the way. Um, you heard nothing about that fight during Tyson's rise. They completely covered it up. And his next fight was his fight against Mitch Green um, uh, on HBO for the first time. Um, and the quick Tillis fight was swept under the rug. Nobody talked about it. Now, interestingly, and you brought this up, Holyfield fought uh, quick Tillis in his first fight at heavyweight, knocked him out in seven rounds. Yeah, it's just when all you need to do is put their two records up against each other, make a column. And, you know, even to the very casual fan, you just the numbers add up and you say, OK, wow, Tyson had a real good machine behind him based on who he fought, what his record is, and then compare that to Evander Holyfield. You know, Holyfield was a he was kind of a blown up light heavyweight, you know, he, and then they put him in against guys who are monsters, you know, natural heavyweights, and he was still knocking them out. Uh, and you know, I'm a huge fan of Holyfield and I'm a fan of Tyson's too. And I know both you and me are not, we're not, we're not disparaging Tyson in any way. We're just talking hard numbers, you know, like, and, and we're just talking about who had the better promotional machine. Clearly Tyson had a lot of influential, powerful, strategic people behind him. Because there was a lot of money coming and they knew it. And look, the fight business is show business as well. And you know my comparison. I've made it before and I made it, make it in the book many times. Um, Burt Cooper was a uh, heavyweight from Philadelphia. With all of Tyson's attributes, all of Tyson's style, if Custom Auto had found Burt Cooper and was in New York instead of Philadelphia, Burt Cooper could have become Mike Tyson if he was moved that way. The unfortunate part for Burt Cooper was he didn't get that luck. He finished his career 30 and 30. Mike Tyson finished his career something like 50 and 6. Um, and that is the difference between management um, your own personal demons, of course. I mean, we're, we're not going to discount those. Cooper hurt himself as much as uh, not having a leg up. Um, not a lot of people get found at 12 years old and brought in to do something. And that's what happened to Mike Tyson. God bless. You know, he's taken out of that hell in Brownsville, Brooklyn, taken upstate, and he was trained to be heavyweight champion of the world. And he accomplished it. And by the way, you know, as we call, we, we say things about the promotional machine and what uh, Jacobs and and, and, and um, Bill Caton did, you know, that's their job. You know, that, that is, that is someone's job. Like, let me give you another example. Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. Um, that, that man has less skill as a fighter than I do, but you know, because of his father's reputation, um, he was matched accordingly to the point where he came within one punch of knocking out the lineal middleweight champion of the world, world Sergio Martinez. Now um, that is what you're supposed to do for a guy's career. He did that himself. There was no fixing. So you took a guy with zero talent and you brought the absolute best out of him. Now, was Martinez shot? Yeah, okay. But what difference does it make? Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. came within one punch of knocking out the middleweight champion in the world. Lineal middle, middleweight. And you are real fun to talk to because you can pull up these fights. I love talking to guys who really know the history. I'm guessing that you're just the kind of guy who can spot a prospect coming uh, from a mile away. Uh, just the kind of guy handicappers would love to talk to in your mind, Derek, what makes a good prospect? What do you look for when you, you're looking at camps, you're looking at different uh, fight schools. What are you looking for in a prospect? 
Well, listen, number one, I look for the effort because I believe in every kid. Um, and if the kid puts in the effort, I believe that you can make it. And I just gave the example. Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. had no talent. I'm sorry. I love watching you fight, Julio. I'm not trying to make fun of you. But but taking uh, him and, and creating what they did, what we just talked about, is what I believe I can do with any kid uh, who wants to put in the work. So, you know, I'm and I'm so excited that there's so many places that anybody has that opportunity now. Because back then, in the old days, when I was a kid, they'll forget it. You weren't boxing. There were no boxing gyms unless you were in the inner city. And then you were lucky. And it was sporadic. I mean, most of my teenage years were in San Diego and we had a gym called Spud Murph's Boxing Gym and it would open and close. I think the biggest guy out of there was a guy by the name of James the Heat Kinchin, who actually beat Tommy Hearns in his fight for the first super middleweight WBO title and they robbed Kinchin. Poor guy. Um, but, you know, I was away with a fellow by the name of Robert Davis, Bull, we call him affectionately. Now, Bull was the kind of guy who didn't work out, but he could get under the bar with four plates on each side and do 30 reps, no joke. Um, and he was Kinchin's sparring partner for the fight with Hearns, um, and which I guess you could say oh, kind of a walking heavy bag. He could, he could not be hurt. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And you're speaking, you know, not only as a guy who studies boxing, but you're speaking a guy who came over to boxing. Now you were a lifelong practitioner of karate and you know, you, that was kind of your home base, which is so different than boxing, you know, different stance, different, obviously different footwork. And obviously, you know, the hands are completely different. Tell us what it was like coming over to boxing after a life of learning karate. What kind of adjustments did you have to make to uh, get good at boxing? So, you know, it's funny. I, I finally found a boxing gym I could go to. It was called Ed Crowder's Boxing Gym. It was in Escondido, California. Actually, I think they called it Ex Escondido Boxing Club. Um, and I went there and I tried to find a home. I couldn't really find one. And I remember punching down the lines they laid in the floor for the footwork. And one of the trainers came up to me and said, are you karate? And he didn't speak English real well. It was a lot of the, the most of the gym was Mexican, which which is not surprising given the sport and where we were. Um, and I would stick my jab out there and hold it there because that's what I learned to do in karate. And it took a really long time to learn to loosen the body. And here's the irony here. Hard martial arts are all isometric tension in Everything you do, whether you're doing forms or technique, about the only flowing thing you have is free sparring. But because there's no contact in free sparring, there never becomes the tension you're going to need to learn how to get hit and hit people. So it's a real irony. When boxing, you learn very quickly, you've got to be loose. That isometric tension is a killer. It will cause fatigue and you'll get knocked out pretty, pretty shortly. Now, rather ironically, that isometric type of strength is very useful in grappling. But in karate, they don't grapple really at all. So it's just, you know, I, I'm guessing that back when martial arts were first invented, they were looking for a way to strengthen the body uh, in lieu of weights, which they probably really didn't have. And that sort of isometric tension was a way of working the body. I mean, we see how it worked for Bruce Lee and others like him. Um, but yeah, that was the biggest thing, the body tension. Now, let me say something about the movement, because I think that's important. Probably the reason I was so successful sparring MMA guys 
uh, was not only that my my techniques, meaning my kicks really were pretty incredible because I have a, a Korean style background, um, but m rather the movement. A typical MMA guy learns some Muay Thai and maybe he learns some boxing. Maybe he likes one better than the other, but that's his stand-up because he's got so many arts to learn, you know, and he's got to concentrate on jujitsu, certainly. Um, but, you know, a traditional martial artist moves differently. And boxing and, and, and Muay Thai, those fighters do not move like traditional martial artists move. Now, some guys keep it very solid. Let me give you examples. Obvious. Leota Machida. Yep. Steven Wonderboy yeah. Thompson. I was going to bring but, up both those guys. Yep. Yeah. And by, by the way, very traditional. But let me give you a little bit more MMA blend. Uh, Sugar Shane O'Malley. That stuff he does that people look at and they kind of wonder that sort of I'm not lefty, I'm not righty, I switch back and forth, here's a round kick, here's a this, here's a that. That is traditional martial arts point fighting. Let me give you another one. Conor McGregor. Look how he stands. His feet are spread wide. He's not ready to check. Obviously, we saw from Dustin Blade. <laughs> his left hand up and his right hand below his chin. That is a point fighter's fighting stance and because mma is fought with little gloves they can get away with it um in boxing and muay thai there's gloves so you can go in there and wail on your opponent or your sparring partner which i love to do but in mma you're not so open to do that and that's where the traditional arts can seek their way in because you really you rock a guy once you have the ability to get him out of there pretty quick yeah, that's uh, it's amazing to watch how all the different styles blend. And it's funny how things can come full circle. You know, you can have um, Muay Thai working at times and then at times it becomes a liability. Karate working at times. Some, it's like it's almost like the whole thing is a circle. It's not linear. Uh, whereas, you know, the, the big guy in the cage hit the muscle or the size can work in certain circumstances. And then in other circumstances, it's, it's harmful. It's, it's complicated. It's, it's not linear. It's, it's a circular. And that's why it's so important to ha to have a, a foundation in all of the different styles and be able to, uh, you know, adapt and make the adjustments. Uh, you know, that's why it's so important. You know, come back to what you're talking about when to get those adjustments in between rounds you know, if something's working or it isn't working, you know, tell me what uh, your footwork, that type of footwork isn't good. You, you know, you need the guy to be able to tell you at the end of that first round, okay, we thought this was going to work, but it doesn't, you know, keep it on the feet, you know, forget you're not going to take them down and it's not working for you anyway. You've got to be able to make in between round adjustments. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and that's what the corner is for. That's that's why I'm so against the cheerleader trainer. Um, now, listen, I know a lot of trainers have no foundation, no substance. And so that's what it relegates them to. And let me say something else. I know it is very hard to analyze in the moment. You know, the round is what, three to five minutes, right? And then you got one minute in the corner to describe it. But, you know, if you're a worthwhile trainer and worth those big bucks that guys like Teddy Atlas are getting, you better know what you're talking about. 
Um, you know, and, and most of them don't. And that's really sad for me to see. I mean, the truth of the matter is uh, it's a game of manipulation. It's one of the reasons I've never really had any uh, fighters under my charge. I have limited patience for that. I love teaching kids martial arts. Um, but by the time uh, people become adults and they get into fighting, there's a lot of ego massaging that has to go on. Um, and I'm not into it. I, I'm not going to do it. And, and I've said this before, look, I'm not going to change and the world isn't going to change for me. So the Teddy Atlases are always going to have the fighters and I will be like Mr. Miyagi teaching a Daniel son who shows up. <laughs> There's a great picture going around right now, Derek. You've probably seen it. It's very current um, and it's making it's making the rounds in all of the martial arts and boxing circles. And it's two. It's a picture of two different dudes. One dude is completely jacked like he's just muscular as hell vascular he just looks like he'll rip your head off and the other dude is a skinny dork he almost you know he almost looks like uh you know a bill gates uh type of dude right no muscle mass no nothing skinny dude it says the guy in the right is a brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt the guy in the left is a bodybuilder for the untrained eye it would be astonishing to learn that the bill gates will beat that guy every single time. And you had a chap chapter in your book that talks about it's much easier for you as a trainer when you're training your kids to learn boxing and to learn martial arts and to learn MMA before they have any muscle mass. And that muscle mass can actually, it's, it's not valuable for you pound for pound. So if you got a blown up 55er versus a legitimate 55er, the legitimate 55er wins every time because he's not going to gas out because the muscles need so much oxygen. Right. No, without a doubt. And, you know, a lot of people will come to me and they'll say, well, what about examples like uh, Brock Lesnar? Um, here's the one thing to remember about Brock Lesnar. Brock Lesnar is probably walks around at about 320, 330. So he's making an enormous cut to get himself to 265. So part of what explains his complete lack of jaw is not only I'm sure the anabolic steroids that he's got to taper off on a little bit uh, because of his WWF career he uses, um, but also the fact that he has an enormous weight cut himself. Yeah, I mean, listen, the kids in boxings where I first noticed that at Escondido Gym, those kids could punch for days because they had zero muscle mass. And when your body learns to do that, when you finally get some muscle mass in your teens and in your 20s, it isn't such a big deal anymore. Um, look, there are muscular fighters who can train themselves. Mike Tyson's a prime example. If you think his hands are going to be slow because he's got big arms you're going to be wrong real quick um but yeah listen uh you don't have to look like a bodybuilder to be a fighter uh can it help yeah i mean i've seen certain guys as long as they're not fighting under their weight class utilize uh bigger muscles and and, and sort of a full stomach to allow them to take more punishment um at the same time they're usually slower right that's just goes with the territory um those those greedy little muscles want a lot of oxygen they constantly want to be fed so a lot of times those greedy little muscles are not used they're not useful in a fight 
Um, but look, there's all kinds. There's muscular guys that are complete savages. Roy Bowden, who you mentioned before the show, is an example of one. Uh, you cannot judge a book by its cover is the main point. And me as a martial artist, you know, people ask me, well, God, you got to not be scared of anybody. No, I'm scared every time I get in a fight or I have to be confronted with that because you have no idea what is going to happen. Um, but look, am I more prepared than 99% of the people? Absolutely. And, and that's, that's part of why we train. You have a great chapter on Muay Thai in the book. Um, and in it, you highlight one of the coolest stories. And I've watched the video. It's really, really fun to watch. And that's when Rick the Jet Rufus, who was an amazing kickboxer, an amazing point fighter, one of the best. He was, you know, everybody was terrified of the dude. Fought for the first time a Thai fighter with this exotic style that had not been seen in the States at the time. And it was very disparaged, right? Because, you know, karate and kickboxing, you know, it had kind of had the swagger back in the day. And here's this kind of skinny, small dude from Thailand with this weird thing called Muay Thai. I'm going to murder this kid. I'm going to murder this kid. And he did come out. When you watch the fight, the first couple of rounds, the kid was having, you could tell the kid was trying to figure out the style because, you know, those big swinging kicks were clubbing him. He was getting clubbed and he got hurt a couple of times. But in that famous, uh, you know, hang your hat on it, Muay Thai style, he figured the timing out. He figured everything out. And he started doing things that that Rick had no idea what to do with. You know, once those I don't think the elbows were even allowed. He didn't even need to use oh, the elbows, the no. leg kicks. It was the leg kicks. It is such an important fight to watch if you're into martial arts, because you can watch the transition. You know, how the sport just keeps evolving and we, we add new sports to it and we add new disciplines into MMA. You can watch it actually happen in real time when you watch that fight. Because you can watch Rick win the first three rounds, and then you can watch the tie fighters. Even the fourth round is close, and then all of a sudden the, the, the tie fighter runs away with it and fucking oh, sorry, chops him down like a tree. It's such a great fight to watch. Yeah, no, listen, I, I remember that fight, and it was meaningful for all of us because Rick was from that era of full contact karate. Um, great era, bad Brad Hefton, Jerry Rome, uh, Dennis Alexio, the biggest of all of them, Rob Salazar. Um, and I grew up watching the PKA on uh, ESPN, and I loved it. I'd stay up late at night back east, and I'd watch it. And, and because I was a karate guy, I could relate to it more than the boxing, which I wasn't allowed to do or couldn't find a gym to do. Um, but Rick took that challenge where he fought that tie guy. And look, leg kicks are typically analogous to body work. Um, and what do they say about body work? They say, look, it's going to pay off in the later rounds. You just keep going to it. Keep going to it. Eventually, it's going to affect the guy. It's going to affect his breathing. It's going to affect his conditioning. Um, for a true fighter, professionals, uh, leg kicks are very similar. Um, and Rick did real well, had real slick movement back then. I think it was the last time I saw Rick at super middleweight. Um, but yeah, eventually those leg kicks took it all out of him. Um, I don't think he was named the Jet yet. He took that name for Benny the Jet Urquidez, who was one of the first Americans to actually bring Muay Thai here. And he, and he did it as a kind of homage to him. And you know why Rick's so important? It's not just that one fight where he got humbled and brought us the reality of leg kicks 
West, which the rest of the world was on to way before us. Uh, but rather because Rick was really the one to usher in K1 and the leg kicks here in America. He was in K1 uh, one, who's and he, he fought one of my old sparring partners, Pedro Pitbull Fernandez, knocked him out in I think the second round. Um, and then him and uh, God, well, I can't remember the other guy's name, but they both got trips to Japan, got annihilated because, quite frankly, as as leg kick fighters, the Americans were way behind the Europeans and and the Asians at that time. Um, but yeah, Rick Rufus was in the vanguard for that change occurring and it's just it's so neat by the way he was at a couple of my fights as well i mean the guy has been transcending my my career if you call it that in martial arts for so long and i'm a huge fan of rick rufus yeah i had the honor of commentating uh 10 or 15 years ago with his brother duke up in milwaukee and we got to do a bunch of fights and i was like a sponge getting as much information as i can from duke and that was what the rufus brothers were always known for is they're mad scientists and they're smart enough not to have the ego when new stuff is introduced they absorb it and they start implementing it into their game wisely and that's what kept them relevant and they still are you know especially duke duke is still hugely relevant uh, you watch any ufc fight and you it's a real good chance he's going to be cornering somebody um, and that's what, you know, that's what I love about the Rufus brothers. Uh, let's switch gears now because, um, this is another important topic when the money, uh, increases in, in combat sports, which it has dramatically in the last seven to eight years. Now, every fight starts becoming important. It starts becoming strategic. Um, you, you not only have to be uh, very calculating in who you fight, but you also have to stay healthy. And it's very, very difficult in this sport when you're training. If you're sparring hard, um, if you're if you're rolling with you know someone who doesn't it doesn't know how to quite mark, and he he might you know pull on an armbar a little bit, and you get an injury, and then you get the call for the big show, whether it's UFC, whether it's Bellator, whether it's one, whether it's PFL, whatever the big show, you got to be ready to go. We all know behind the scenes that. Big science, big pharma is helping keep these guys going. Um, how prevalent is doping in the sport? Uh, is it widely prevalent? Is it moderate? Is it only here and there? Uh, you know, is it Lance Armstrong style or is it just kind of a uh, smattering in your opinion? So, so let's let's talk about uh, something that I think was really, really telling. Um, I, I was my first UFC show was 2008. My brothers bought me tickets for my birthday, and it was uh, Anderson Silva versus Chael Sonnen in Oakland. I was living in San Francisco at the time. Um, and if you remember Chael at the time, Chael wasn't really highly regarded. Um, Anderson had been through eight opponents or so and they were really looking to match him with someone um and then what happened that night chael sonnen uh beat the greatest mma fighter of all time around the ring uh like an animal um and, and when sonnen did this who and sonnen is a known wrestler obviously uh sonnen didn't do it with any special technique sonnen didn't do it with any uh footwork sonnen did it purely with performance enhancing drugs um, and Anderson Silva, look, is one of the best fighters of all time, if not the best, right? Between his boxing, taekwondo, Muay Thai, he had nothing against a juiced out Chael Sonnen. Um, I think that tells you 
right there, how important they are in a fight. Um, it's interesting. In Japan and other places, they look at athletes as performers and they think to themselves, look, that's what you're there for. That's why the pride days were so exciting. Um, in the United States, we, we sort of have a different view of things um, for better or worse. Um, and I remember that Dana and the Fertitas in, instituted USADA pretty quickly. And, and some people may go, why did they do that? Because after all, the fighting is their business. Well, Dana and, and the Fertitas looked at boxing, looked at all combat sports previous, including professional wrestling. If you remember in the mid 90s, McMahon had finally made something out of the business he inherited from his father. And he was on his track to the billionaire mark. Um, and what happened? The feds came after him and they charged him with racketeering, running a criminal organization by feeding all his wrestlers steroids. Now, if you were a fan in that era, uh, overnight, the wrestlers shrank. They stopped using those drugs um, because McMahon was obviously concerned that everything he built was about to be destroyed because the feds took an interest in him. Now, Dana and the Fertitas uh, must have felt the same way. Now, the sad part about that is, you know, in Japan, we have an even playing field. You know, you know, you got Fedor at his best against his opponent as his, at his best. But what you have now in the United States is a system because we are, I, I don't want to call it law abiding. I, I don't know what you call it, um, regulatory. Um, now it's who can cheat the best. And if you think that there are uh, Contis out there making uh, synthetic steroids that you can't detect, you're just wrong. Uh, and, and the simple fact of the matter is, look, I'm a 48-year-old man. Uh, if you stick enough testosterone in my body, uh, I've, I've beat up on UFC fighters pretty good, even at this age. So the fact of the matter is drugs play an absolutely enormous part in the sport. Uh, there's so much money now that you just brought up, right, uh, that this is not going to stop. Um, look. Remember when Jose Aldo lost to Conor McGregor? Jose Aldo had destroyed people for what, 10 years? I think he was undefeated for 10 years. Lost one fight, but was undefeated for 10 years. But if you watch him walk in that ring with Conor, and look, all credit to Conor McGregor, no doubt, okay? But Jose Aldo was not on his PEDs anymore. And none of that team was. Henan Barraus had a 500 record since, record since then, too. Um, they lost their complete edge. And Connor knocked Jose out in 13 seconds. That shows you guys how important PDs are in the fight game. It's, it's just an unfortunate fact. Yeah, it's a shell game. And uh, one of these days we'll grow up and we'll, we'll mature you know, like Japan and just say, look, this is, this is for entertainment. And the truth is, if you study nutraceuticals and you study uh, biohacking, they're now thinking that cycling these certain PEDs and certain testosterone hormones might actually be a longevity play because you're lowering inflammation, you're increasing lean body mass, you're decreasing your fat. When you increase lean body mass to body fat ratio so lean body mass to fat ratio that is literally the definition of anti-aging so what we used to think was so bad we're now realizing that you know we don't know whether certain peds are actually bad for us i mean uh, if I, I i tell you right now i went to a functional md <laughs> which that's my preference i want to go to someone who 
treats my body holistically. Um, I went to a functional medicine, functional MD, and we talked about that. And he said, the evidence is becoming more and more compelling that bio compatible, you don't want synthetics, but bio compatible hormones could be anti-agers. So well, look, well, let's be honest. All of wall street now is on testosterone replacement therapy. And, and I would point out because I am something of an expert at this. You will notice that while Dana and the Fertitis have forbidden their fighters to do it. They oh, are out of their mind. Oh yeah. my God. Dana is bajacked. His arms are bigger than my legs now. I guarantee you that's not from hard workouts. <laughs> Oh my God. I mean, I know, uh, especially Lorenzo and him are the two, like yeah. they, every year I see those guys, they're bigger and bigger and bigger. I have video of me about 10 or 15 years ago, interviewing Dana. We're about the same size. You know, we're about a buck 70, buck 75, maybe 180 tops with just about identical size. And now that dude's probably 25, 30 pounds heavier than me. Yeah, I saw a picture of him on the internet the other day, and I already knew this before this, but now he looks bodybuilder level. I mean, it's getting to the point of ridiculous. But you look, in fairness to Dana, he's under no regulatory scrutiny. So he can do whatever he wants, and he's welcome to. It's a shame, though, that for older people, we recommend these things, but our young athletes are putting their lives on their line, aren't allowed to take them. But you know, listen, we live in an insanely regulatory society, and it's just the way it is. Yeah, like the question of whether we would blame Dana. Are you kidding me? When you're worth six or $700 million, what is then the name of the game? The name of the game when you're worth six or $700 million is longevity because sure. now the name of the game is being around to enjoy it, right? Sure. Being around to disperse it and, and do what you do, help the kids, you know, uh, donate to, to worthy charities. Uh, you don't want to die at like 71 years old because you don't learn the body and how to hack and how to uh, biohack for longevity. That's the name of the game. When money's no, it's actually, it should be the name of the game, no matter how much money you have, because the better you can make your brain, the more money you can make anyway. So that's like people, right. what people don't understand is when it comes to your body, do not, do not chintz on what you spend. Do all the high end things for your body. Well, let me say this, Jordan. I mean, I, you, you know I have an idea of a, a combat sports nonprofit. And, and my real ideal, my idealization of it is a Boy Scouts for MMA. Now, why do I say that? Because the Boy Scouts was a great idea, but it's antiquated. And I'm not talking about their current problems now. That's, that's something else. Uh, I'm talking about woodland discovery and stuff like that. We live in a society now where probably knowing how to take care of yourself and your body and being able to defend yourself is probably more important than campfires. So, you know, I want every child to be able to do that. Now, let's say I actually create this and it happens uh, across 50 states and, and I'm hopeful still. Dana has done far more for everybody than I have done if I accomplish that. I mean, Dana has brought back combat sports for everyone. I mean, combat sports was gone. It was a, uh, a side note. You were a uh, you were a black sheep if you were in combat sports before. Part of the reason it was only in the urban settings. Dana has brought it up in the front and center. So he has done his part for humanity for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, we you know we were saying earlier with when whenever we go to fights, you will find two, three, four fighters on the card who will all say, 
Had it not been for boxing, had it not been for MMA, had it not been for martial arts, I'd be in prison right now or I don't or I might be dead or I might be dead. So, you know, uh, the fact that now, you know, every state almost is having, you know, at least 20 or 30 events a year down here in Florida. We have 90 more events planned. We've already done 50 events 90 events planned in one state before the end of the year. That's just till November. That's not including December, 90 more events. And, you know, there's 10 to 15 fights on every one of those events. So that's 30, 20 to 30 fighters who are making money, who are learning the skill set, who are getting to, to demonstrate their skill set in front of big audiences. Uh, and that's 30 people on each card who are not in prison who are not beating up people on the streets. They're not beating up their kids because they're learning humility. They're channeling their energy. They're channeling, uh, you know, all of that. Let's face it. When you're 17 to 28 and all that adrenaline and hormones and testosterone, and if you don't have a place to channel that, you don't have a place to empty out the tank. It's got to go somewhere. So you go Absolutely. at the end of the year, you know? It's, it's the greatest outlet for that type of thing. And, you know, it's really sad that our society couldn't grip that before. You know, boxing was seen as a mugs game and who would ever want their child to box and things of that nature without, without understanding the youthful exuberance that goes on from those natural chemicals you're talking about, from that testosterone. I mean, I remember what I was like when I was a kid. I mean, people would have called me crazy if I could have channeled all that energy into MMA. Uh, I mean, my life would have been so different. I, I probably would not have gone to prison. Um, as it is, martial arts still made a huge impact on me, um, even in there. Uh, so, look, I just want to reach as many kids as possible. That's a great give back. We're talking with Derek Meyer Galanis, the author of Warrior of the Light. There it is right there. All things martial arts, a lifelong martial artist, all things MMA, all things boxing. And it is a wonderful read. I am about halfway through it. And I promised people that I would read some quotes and have you expound upon them because there's so much cool stuff in here that I wanted to make sure I got to. So let's hit a couple of quotes uh, in. We'll kind of go in order of the book. So this is a fun little paragraph. And again, the insights you show really help people to understand the heritage and the history and the trajectory of martial arts. So here's a, a little passage. If you look at the mounts that Hoist put on in the original UFCs, and that's Hoist Gracie. For people who are not aware, Hoist Gracie was the guy who really kind of opened up Americans' eyes to Brazilian jiu-jitsu because we couldn't tell what he was doing. He would sub people in his gi, and it almost looked fake because he was subbing guys who had 30 or 40 pounds on them, and it was, it was wild to look at. It almost looked like choreographed, but it wasn't. He really was tapping people out. But if you look at those original UFC... <laughs> submissions from UFC one, two, and three, any teacher would admonish Hoist like a white belt for his wide knees. His submissions now look rudimentary and forced, but that is because with the success of the UFC and in turn, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, both have benefited by continuing to evolve and become more precise and more effective. That's fascinating because what was elite cutting edge submissions back then? that we were all like mesmerized by now would be getting yelled at by an instructor. That's how refined submissions have become. 
Yeah, the, the sport has com been completely changed and Brazilian jiu-jitsu itself has been completely changed. Why? Because it made itself a phenomenon. I mean, people were entranced by it and, and they loved it. And, you know, look, that whole hoisting goes back to what we've said a little bit about matching in the fight game and, and Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. Um, look, nobody knew what hoist was doing. So when nobody knows what you're doing, it makes it a, a heck of a lot easier to implement those things. Um, so did Hoyce have a rig deck? Yeah, he did. But you know what? So what? He brought us uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and he brought us MMA. Um, and so if I can just expound on this, because it's exciting for me. Um, look, I'm half Greek. Some of you, your viewers might know that from my name. Um, in Greece uh, is where the Olympics started. Uh, what, 2,000 years ago. And of course, a lot of your listeners probably know it, boxing and wrestling were sports there. But what they may not know is that pancreation was also a sport. Pancreation was a prototype of MMA. And to me, it's a miracle that 2,000 years later, through Brazilian jiu-jitsu, by the way, which was founded by through judo, which doesn't resemble judo at all now, MMA is being talked about as becoming an Olympic sport again. We're having a, a potential revival of pancreation. And that is so thrilling. But what's even more thrilling for me is that Brazilian jiu-jitsu today is practiced by guys at the office. A lot of people don't want to get punched or kicked. That's for the kids we've talked about. But Everybody can roll Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And in ancient Greece, in the Agora, wrestling was something that people did with each other to prove their manliness. And what, what has happened now is, in our death-ridden culture, people have Brazilian jiu-jitsu where they can go and compete and feel good about themselves. Maybe they submit a blue belt one night and they're just thrilled the next day at the office because the Greeks really believed in the complete man, not just the intellectual Socrates, Plato, but the warriors well you can look at their statues and tell that um and that's what this revival of combat sports has done for america we've brought back the complete man and people can feel and by the way woman too let's not take away ronda rousey we have brought back this human energy that was submitted for so long no pun intended because people said that's that's bad why would you ever compete in a combat sport? And now look at the good it's done for society. Look at how popular it is. And to me, that is just amazing. And it all started with Hoist and his rudimentary submissions. Yeah, it was, it was an amazing thing to watch. And it was, you know, what was so fascinating about it is that you, as an American, were, we were all being awakened to, we didn't know what we didn't know. And it was like, it's right in your face. And we realized that we are missing at least half of that total man pancreation uh, equation that you're talking about. Cause we were just all on the feet. We had wrestling, but wrestling in the, in karate and boxing, the two shall never meet. You know, they never met. There was never this all around complete man. Like you talked about. And in a way, Brazilian jiu-jitsu kind of exposed a lot of these. Um, I don't know how to, how else to put it. There's a lot of guys who, you know, the disarming, the disarming crowd. There's a guy, there's a guy right out. That's so funny. He's got a website called McDojo. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It is so freaking hilarious. And he exposes the, you know, these goofy fat guys who 
you know, like, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, yeah. and it's so funny, but you know, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu exposed them, you know, and in a way uh, they showed the effectiveness of the sport. Like you, you don't have a choice. You have to learn submissions and Jiu Jitsu. And it like it, a lot of people, you know, here's what happened. You either adapted, right? Like you were like Duke Rufus and Rick Rufus and you adapted or you died. And because everybody was going like, okay, we're going MMA. And so you better adapt your gym. Uh, so that's kind of like, but I'm curious to get your take, uh, you know, as such an expert in the space of the whole McDojo thing, what, like, what is that? Who are these fat guys? Like, you know, the, the chi guys, the, who are the chi guys that the, the, the energy, what is that? Yeah. Okay. So, so <laughs> you're, you're going back and this is, a uh, part of of the story that that because it's before the UFC, um, before the UFC, martial arts were individual silos, um, and everybody could claim I'm a master and I can kill you and I have a death touch and and whatever else, um, and who would who would say they can't because nobody's going to come into someone else's dojo and, and dispute that, and so it's a little bit uh, like and I I hate to use this analogy, religious leaders, um, they each have their own flocks. And, and that's it. And, and it really becomes how much can you convince your followers of what you can do? So back then, a lot of it was personality, right? Um, traditional martial arts point fighting was a game of tag. I mean, there was real contact there. Um, and uh, so you had a ton of these. And the, the antidote for that was Hoist's UFC. Um, now, look, granted, the rules were made for Hoist to be very successful. And let, let's be fair, as time went on, one thing we've seen is that almost every art has effectiveness. And it went through transition phases. Um, in the beginning, people thought, well, okay, only grapplers uh, can win. Um, and then it went on and Maurice Smith, the kickboxer, won the UFC title. And they said, wow, Maurice Smith finally won. We've got a, a, a full contact guy or, or whatever you want to call it, a stand-up guy with the title. Um, and of course, eventually he lost that. And it got traded back and forth until we finally reached the time where we're finally getting complete fighters. Because listen, I've seen a lot of pure jujitsu guys come into MMA and suffer because they're not used to getting punched and kicked. So it's not as if jujitsu is the end of the game in any aspect. And traditional arts that were maligned for a long time. I think everybody knows how to throw a spin hook kick now. Everybody knows how devastating spin hook kicks can be. I remember in the early days of the UFC, and because I was a Tung Sudo guy, people said, your, your art doesn't work. It, it, it's, it's not real. Well, now you know how real it is. Edwin Barboza's spin hook kick in Brazil was a, a shout heard around the world. And it's not just him. I mean, lots of people throw those now. So listen, it is not the, the style, but it is the fighter. And, and I'm just glad that everybody's becoming more complete because of the UFC. And by the way, even Hoist became more complete. Didn't he just beat uh, Ken Shamrock in a Bellator fight a little while ago? Uh, so it was nice to see Hoist actually put his game completely together too. Oh, absolutely. You know, everybody, anyone who's smart will keep on working on their game. There's always a bigger, better dog out there and you better keep refining your skills. You know, and just there's so many exotics that like we're talking about, it comes full circle. Um, I, I watched a guy uh two fights ago bring capoeira into the cage and he knocked out the guy with like it was like a handstand kick and like whoever would have thought something that exotic like doing a handstand 
would kick someone out. You could go online and watch hundreds of capoeira, you know, Brazilian style. It's almost looks like dance. And this is wild. You probably know this. This was a way that slaves hid the fact that they were training martial arts. They pretended they were dancing, but in reality, they were learning how to make you go to sleep. And when you watch it, you just think they're dancing. You think it's this kind of wild, exotic dance, but <laughs> they will sleep you. Yeah, no, look, uh, the thing about capoeira that is uh, effective and, and the reason that technique was effective is not the technique itself, although we've talked about spin hook kicks in general as being effective. It was the movement implemented for that because people do not see capoeira movement often in fights. So they're fooled. They don't know what is coming. So I didn't see the fight you're talking about, but I can guarantee you the opponent said, what is this guy doing? There was no natural reaction to that. And before he knew it, he had a kid, he had a foot in his face and he was out. Yeah. That's fascinating. By the way, before I forget, uh, I think anyone who's watching this and does their own shows would do themselves a service if they hired you to come in and be color on some of their fights, because your insights are really uh, very uh, powerful and useful. And you could tell you've really studied the sport, you know, at a granular level. So first, thanks for spending the time. Uh, and I want to respect your time. Can we go a few more minutes with you? We can go as long as you like it. My night is yours. Awesome. I appreciate it. Hopefully we won't run out here on the, on the, my recording thing. So let's shift gears a little bit. Cool little factoid that I highlighted uh, in your book. You grew up next to Vince McMahon. I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean who, who grows up next to Vince McMahon? So what was that like? Did, did you get any gigs out of it? No. Okay. So it's very interesting. So uh, we're talking early eighties. And people probably have a hard time remembering this, but the WWF, which it was then, wasn't the WWE we know today. It wasn't the public company billionaire thing. What, what Vince's thing was, was uh, a business he inherited from his father. And if I'm not mistaken, they were from Cape Cod. And pro wrestling was a real regional circuit back then. And I can tell you, uh, when Vince moved in to Greenwich, where we were living, uh, because my father was a very wealthy criminal, and that's where very wealthy people lived. Excuse me. <laughs> that's um, a whole other subject, which we will cover in another episode with you, by the way. Okay, sounds great. Yeah. No, uh, Vince, Vince's brilliance. And, and, and it, it goes without saying the champion back then when, when he moved in was Bob Backlund. Now, Bob Backlund was a great guy, was actual real amateur wrestler. And they used to try to keep that that thing going where they said, well, it's actually real. Um, and it was a, there was a big thing in the news and Geraldo Rivera did a report on it. And Dr. D, David Schultz smacked him upside the head. Yes. Yes. And Geraldo Rivera had ear damage. No, because that was how wrestling was held. Wrestling was had an Omerta culture. Um, there were a lot of dirty things that went on back then. There's a lot of drug use. Uh, there were homosexual promoters. There was a lot of strange stuff in the world of pro wrestling. And it was really kind of an outlaw sport. Now, what did Vince do to change that? I mean, they tried to make it all American with Bob Backlund. He kind of looked like Opie. That was what they were going for. But what Vince saw is Hulk Hogan, went by the name of Thunderlips, starred in Rocky Three next to Sylvester Stallone. And Vince knew right away, 
oh my God, this is the moment. I bring this guy in because Rocky movies back then were about the top of the heap. I mean, a Rocky movie was a black blockbuster. So you take a guy that everybody just learned about from Rocky and you bring him in. And by the way, it's interesting. So they had Bob Backlund. I was there. I was like a 12 or 11 year old kid. They had Bob Backlund lose his title to the Iron Sheik, um, who was the great enemy because of the Ayatollah and all that. Um, And then Bob Ackland tried to talk Vince's father into the fact that, you know, Hulk Hogan is just a rock and roll guy. He's not a real wrestler. This won't work. And Vince's father almost fell for it because he had lived in that culture so long. And Vince said, listen, Hogan, just hang on or Terry, whatever his real name is. Uh, we're going we're gonna to make this work. I know it's going to work. And that was the monumental point for Vince McMahon. I can tell you when he moved into the neighborhoods, a lot of the doctor's wives and whatnot turned their noses up. Well, I can tell you this. They're not turning their noses up now because Vince <laughs> has an IPO and he's worth a billion something dollars. I think his wife ran for senator in Connecticut. Uh, but yeah, I grew up with Shane. Shane uh, was one of the kids in the neighborhood. He was a bully, if I remember correctly, but he was he was my friend. Good, good guy. Wow. What a story. What a story. <laughs> That's wild. Well, you had mentioned earlier uh, that you did some time, and I want to touch upon that a little bit, if that's okay with you. Um, and then we'll wrap with just a couple of things from the back of the book. But, you know, you, it's very hard. You know, I'm sure people, as soon as they heard that, they said, okay, well, what, you know, what did he do time for? Why should we listen to this guy? If, you know, if he's, if he's a convicted a criminal, why should we listen to this guy? And, to me, you're the exact kind of guy we should listen to because you've seen both sides. I love. There's nothing I like more. You just mentioned Rocky and what a an amazing. I'm a Rocky freak because it 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 tells the story of redemption. Redemption to me is the is the is just the stuff that like I can't even begin to explain how deeply that touches me. So that's why you know Stallone well, gets that. Jordan, if I if I can get this out of the way, because it's very important to to what we were talking about tonight and what you just touched on, um, you probably haven't gotten to this in the book yet, but I talk about sparring Joey Beltron um, in chapter eight. I'm down in San Diego, champion of BKFC and, right now. Yeah, and I gave Joey a good whooping. And, and why did I give Joey a good whooping? Well. For about six years, I lived in San Francisco and the stand up in Northern California as compared to Southern is a lot better. I think it has a lot to do with the Asian influence, the boxing influence from Oakland that uh, Southern California missed out on. They got a lot of traditional martial arts, a lot of military returning, and it's just a different game. Um, and Joey and I uh, had a lot of sparring sessions. We sparred dozens around and he's my friend on Facebook. Um, so uh, I contacted him. I said, look, you know, we can make a Rocky story here. This is redemption. You know, Rocky, and this wasn't a big part of the movie. I liked how they did this in Rocky. Rocky was a mob enforcer. That is what he was in the movie. But they don't really get into it because that wasn't the point. And I liked that. Um, you know, from my other book, I'm a Gambino crime family associate. Um my my fight career was not just torn apart by the bad trainers and the the seedy promoters and everything else. It was torn apart by my life of crime that I inherited from my father. Um, and I said, I reached out to Bare Knuckle FC. I said, look, guys, 
you know, Joey's your champ. You know, I used to do round after round with Joey. I said, why don't you give me a shot? Like, like Apollo gave Rocky a shot, you know? And, and, and here's the thing. I did a podcast with those guys, the bare knuckle podcast. Um, and I called Joey out and they're just quiet about it. They don't want to talk about it over there. You know, and, and Joey said something ironic, like, Hey, you know, he's got to climb the ladder, climb the ladder. You guys all have like two or three fights over there. Climb the ladder. I've been doing this thing my whole life. You know, I, you know, I beat you up in sparring Beltron. I mean, why don't you give me a shot? It'll be my last shot. It'll be a fun thing. It'll get my nonprofit going. Um, so listen, you brought up Rocky, uh, and I had to put that out there. Uh, Beltron, why are you ducking me? I love it. A shout, a call out. I love it. I didn't know I was getting a call out tonight. That's even better. Called out officially. And yeah, that's, that's a great fight, by the way. I, I would pay to see that. And I, I can't see uh, David Feldman, the owner of BKFC, not giving you a shot, especially with your rich heritage, uh, the background you have. Um, I don't see that not happening. And uh, I see some of my people making some phone calls. See if we can get that. See if we can get that to happen. Before I went public with this, I, you know, I Facebooked Joey because we were quasi friends. We were, look, Joey and I weren't close because Joey is like many fighters. He's used to being betrayed. So I was Joey's sparring partner. He was real close with a real good friend of mine named Russ Edwards, who's another fighter that we used to spar together with. Um, But I I contacted Joey first, nothing. And by the way, I contacted uh, Feldman. I'm on LinkedIn with him and I, I keep giving him the background. I keep telling him how we can promote it. This is a rocky story literally this is a movie story um and look joey knows what happened um i i don't know if joey's resisting it i don't know if mr feldman's resisting it i don't know but it sounds like a lot of fun to me i love that quote in uh i'm not sure if it was rocky one i think it was rocky one it might have been rocky two where apollo creed's trainer in between rounds whispers into apollo's ear this guy doesn't know it's a show he doesn't know it's a he's he thinks this is real. He's coming after you. Apollo's like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. <laughs> he doesn't know. He's this. This is his shot. He's he's really he's taking this for real. You know, it's, that's sort of like you. Like, hey man, no, like you got nothing to lose. You're gonna throw everything you have into this. Well, and not not to mention, I mean, look, it's in the book. I'm sure you'll read chapter eight now. I mean, look, I'm a better stand-up fighter than Joey. Why? Because I've been doing it longer. Um, will I definitely win the fight? No, I mean, I don't know. For anything. The reason we love fights, people love fights, is because really anything can happen. Now, how do, how do things happen? The, the odds are stacked against us. And that's what the Rocky story was. You got a million to one shot, and you punch your own lottery ticket with your own hard work and your own heart and dedication. And that's what the Rocky story is about. It's not just redemption. It's it's beyond that. It's you reaching for your dream and taking it. And, you know, I, it's a great story. And hopefully we can live in real life with Beltran and Mr. Feldman. You had a couple of really beautiful passages at the end of your book. Um, there's so much to touch upon. We just can't get to everything with the time we have. But I want to do two quick more pieces here with you. Uh, before we wrap the last chapter of your book is entitled mastery and that is you know what we're all shooting for in life right is to become masters at whatever we do whether we play piano whether we're an engineer whether we're a fighter whatever it is we want to become a master we want to and um what you have now done with your mastery which i find so good 
is you take, you're taking the life that you led, the mistakes that you made, um, or as the Buddhists would say, unskillful actions, um, which you ha also have in mastery, and you're flipping that around to use it to help kids and to help keep them from making the same unskillful uh, choices. And you're, you train the kids for free, for no money. And you have this beautiful passage where you say, anyone who has worked on something without the primary reward being money can tell you how a sense of inner peace overcomes you as you give back with no thought of reward. No, that's right. Um, and listen, I have uh, been a martial arts teacher to kids many times. And by the way, whether it was boxing or whether it was MMA or whether it was karate made no difference because they all bring the same thing. And when the child looks up to you um, in, in his small world, you being his sensei is so important to him. And you become almost this figure he can look up to and not want to disappoint the center in his life. As parents, we all try very hard. But you know what? Being a parent, we cannot also be the sensei. That is very difficult. We, they need to have heroes outside of their home, people they can look up to um, and keep them on the straight and narrow and keep them involved in something. And, you know, in San Francisco to San Diego. I did that in both those cities. And I'm going to do it again in Salt Lake City here. Uh, it's something to me that's more rewarding than money. Uh, watching kids look up to you, watching kids respect you. And uh, it's it's something that I had growing up. I had many great masters teach me and I had many bad ones. I'll be one of the good ones. And finally, as we close out here, Derek, um, during the COVID uh, lockdowns, I, where are you out of? Are you up north? Northeast? I'm in Salt Lake City right now. I, I grew up back east in New York, moved to California. I'm not in Salt Lake. So were you shut in like the rest of us during the COVID? Well, I, I, we'll get to that in the next podcast, but sure. I, was in prison, I was in prison for COVID. Um, oh, okay. I've been, yeah, I've been in prison twice. I, I'm out now maybe five months, four months. Okay. Because one of the passages that I really liked, Derek, was when you said, I'm now confined from the outside world. Once again, I look at this place as my Buddhist monastery, a place to purify my soul. In here, it's easy to commit skillful acts and prevent unskillful acts or sins. I love how you used your situation. And this is such a life lesson. And I can remember when I was in L.A. doing shows, movies and that kind of stuff. And I would train with real high end actors, famous actors. And they would say, whatever happens, use it. So if something goes wrong in the script or something, don't stop, use it. And it's a beautiful lesson. So you made some mistakes. You're very upfront about that. You're using the mistakes to help other people not make those same mistakes. And you took that time when you were in lockdown to meditate and to purify your soul and to, and to reflect. Well, listen, anybody who's been to prison can tell you that it is a personal choice uh, what you choose to do with your time. There's gangs, uh, there's drugs, there's fights. You can engage in that stuff if you want to, or you can change your life. I wrote two books. I learned Spanish. And one of the things I do when, when I'm locked away, which unfortunately has happened twice, is I train my body and to physical uh, perfection as far as perfection goes for me. And you look, it's about making the right choices. And I'm going to make those same right choices outside now. Um, and if I can help 
kids not make the mistakes I made, well, then I'm just so much happier about that because nobody needs to go to prison to learn those things. Although, listen, there are fighters uh, with tremendous success stories from that. Transcending fighters, Bernard Hopkins went to jail at 18 years old, got out at 25. He learned how to be disciplined. He learned how to train in prison. He learned how to make something out of his life there. And the man fought for a world title at over 50 years old. I hope that I can be exactly like Bernard Hopkins. Look, I'm 48 now, so I got a couple of years, Joey. Let's do it. <laughs> his name is Derek Meyer Galanis. His book is Warrior of the Light, a fighter's journey through the rise of mixed martial arts. He's been our guest here now for well over an hour. I am so grateful for your time, Derek. There's the book right there, Warrior of the Light. Can they get this on Amazon? Absolutely. Both my books are on Amazon. What's the name of your other book? Greed and Fear, the Galanis Crime Family. And his last name is Galanis, folks. Derek, I'm on your side, buddy. Keep, I'm good. I'm a, right. We're, we're good. <laughs> hey, call, call Mr. Feldman for me. We'll be better than you. <laughs> I really do appreciate your time, brother. And what uh, it, was, it was very illuminating in so many different ways. And I can't wait to get your other book. And we'll do it all over again. We'll, we'll run it back. That's a deal. All right, brother. Be well. And we'll talk soon. Stay safe out there. For our full schedule of fights on the NBC Sports Network, CW and ABC affiliates, visit unitedfightalliance.com. United Fight Alliance. United we fight.